we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. To each his own, one man's meat is another man's poison. That's the American way. I'm Dr. Marilyn Singleton, and welcome to this episode of America Out Loud Pulse. It's time to talk. America's roots lie in a hands-off philosophy. We're about freedom, individual liberty to be who we want to be, and one nation under our creator. We also are about open scientific discussion. That's the only way we can learn and form an educated opinion. Several shows ago, I had a pediatrician discussing the kind of faddish nature of teens and gender issues and the objections to the practice of giving hormones and surgery on gender-confused children. Today, we're going to broaden that discussion. Many people had never even heard the word transgender, or if they had, they hadn't given it a second thought. I remember as a preteen hearing about Christine Jorgensen's sex change operation, but it didn't really register. In medical school and residency in San Francisco, I became quite a bit acquainted with the whole issue. It wasn't in the news, it wasn't a hot topic, but now TGI, or for those who aren't in the know, transgender, gender nonconforming, or intersex, has become part of our lexicon. But by the way, I'm not for drag queens writhing around public library floors with little kitties. I think there's a point where kids are too young for having sexuality and these kind of edgy people cram down their throats. Well, when it comes to adults, they are free to choose and they can weigh whether the benefits of transitioning outweigh the risks. My guest and I met through an organization that promotes treating everyone like a fellow human being. My guest said it best, trans people are not a monolith. We come from many different religions, socioeconomic groups, geographic regions, and political parties. And we have different ideas about all things that matter. Get that, different ideas about all things that matter. Xander Key is an award-winning social worker, author, educator, and speaker. He is a senior fellow and advisor at the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, called FAIR, and co-founder of LGBTQ Caregiver Center. Also, he's a sought-after International Corporate Emotional Wellness and Personal Growth Workshop Facilitator. I am so glad to have Xander here. Welcome. Thank you, Dr. Singleton. It's really an honor to be on your show today. I appreciate the invitation. Well, we'll just get right into it. One thing I always say about people is everybody has a backstory. You have a very interesting and complex background. I'm just gonna let you tell your story for starters. 
Sure. Well, I should let people know I'm 55, almost 56 years old. So I have a somewhat of a, a longish life, not as long as others, of course, um, but it's hard to encapsulate so many years in a really quick uh, introduction, but I will do my best. Um, Please I do. Was, thank you. <laughs> I was raised in Los Angeles, California. I grew up in a neighborhood called Torrance um, and a little bit in another neighborhood called Redondo Beach, both within the Los Angeles County. And my family is from Mexico. I'm first generation American. Uh, I refer to myself as Hispanic or Latino. And my family was Roman Catholic. So I was raised in a Mexican Roman Catholic home in Torrance, surrounded by mostly Irish and Polish Catholics. It was quite an interesting time back in the day. And um, I'm now living in Orlando, Florida. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I'm licensed in California and in Florida. I moved to Florida about three and a half years ago with my wife. My wife and I have been together 20 years and we met while we were studying in seminary. My wife has a master's of divinity. I have a master's of theology. And so we met in that context. But to give you a little bit of uh, information about me between these two things, growing up as a kid and now living in Florida with my wife, I spent some time um, in a lot of, well, I spent some time in some hospitals as a kid as a result of contracting rubella from the MMR vaccination at age six. And um, that caused paralysis and learning disabilities and personality shifts, all kinds of things happened to me. And so that disrupted a lot of my ability to learn and my behaviors in the school setting. I ended up having some trouble in school. Ultimately, I went to a group home where I was um, put into like a special school. And then I just just dropped out of school when I was a sophomore. A um, couple of years go by, I get my GED, I enlist in the U.S. Coast Guard, and so I'm, a, I'm a, a veteran of the U.S. Coast Guard at this point, and when I got out of the Coast Guard, I went into law enforcement, and while I was in the Coast Guard, it was in the mid-1980s, and that was during a time called um, pre-Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and Don't Ask, Don't Tell, for people who don't remember, is, is the, the bill that was um, enacted under President Clinton that said that recruiters couldn't ask their recruits if they were, um, or potential recruits, if they were a homosexual, right? That was the question that was being asked. At the time, I was actually a lesbian, but I wasn't in a relationship, and my crew, recruiter asked me if I had a girlfriend. I said no, and he said, sign here, and I was on my way to basic training. So I served as a closeted lesbian while I was in the Coast Guard, although I was active in the local uh, gay and lesbian community in San Diego, California for a number of years. And um, I spent, you know, pretty, um, well, I don't know, gosh, about 20 years um, identifying as a lesbian or being a lesbian. I guess I didn't identify as one, I just was one. And it wasn't until my early 30s that I was really, I had been aware, of course, of drag queens, as you mentioned, Dr. Singleton, in your intro. I had, um, I had met, you know, female impersonators. I had even met, uh, you know, transsexual women, but I wasn't aware that there were transsexual men or what we call now trans men until I was in my 30s. And that's when all of a sudden it sort of entered my consciousness that that was, um, for lack of a better term, an option for me. Um, I had never struggled uh, with, quote, being born in the wrong body. I had never thought that um, I had some sort of birth defect. That's another way that people um, talk about their um, transsexuality is as a birth defect. That wasn't true for me. I was pretty happy as a little tomboy and then a young lesbian and then a, you know, a middle-aged lesbian. Um, but how I felt about myself was very different from how I was treated 
in society. And so I did have a lot of um, issues with uh, being discriminated against uh, for work, being, um, you know, uh, assaulted verbally and physically a number of times in public by uh, total strangers who were off put by my masculine presentation and, you know, use the typical words that you'd associate with somebody who was angry and screaming at somebody like that. And so I got to a certain point in my mid to late, my mid thirties, where I thought, you know, there's almost like an entrepreneur, like there's got to be a better way. (laughs) And when I learned about these trans men, I thought, well, if I was a masculine man, instead of a masculine woman, would I be treated better in society? And I thought, well, maybe I should give it a try um, because I thought it would be it would be a solution to the problems that I was having. And so I went to a doctor in San Francisco. You had mentioned that also in your intro. I went to San Francisco doctor affiliated with University of California, San Francisco. And I told her exactly why I wanted to start cross-sex hormones or gender affirming hormones, testosterone. And I said, have you ever heard this story from anybody else? And she said, as a matter of fact, I've heard it many, many times, very similar stories, not people saying I was born in the wrong body, not people saying, you know, that they were going to kill themselves if they didn't start transition, just a simple story like mine. I think my life would be improved if I was the other sex or the other gender. And so I started cross-sex hormones uh, 17 years ago, and I haven't looked back. I have no regrets. I did soon learn within a couple of years that it's not easier on this side of the of the grass, that the grass is not greener um, being a man than being a woman. There are different issues that I face now than what I did before, um, but it's definitely not a walk through the rose garden as I was led to believe in my women's studies classes um, and my gender theory classes, so... I, I think I'll stop there because that's probably giving you quite a lot to um, to probe. <laughs> well, I think one of the big things that comes out of your story and for people to truly understand is you were an adult. You had gone through life experiences and had everything that you were doing sounds pretty well thought out of, you might need help in discussing it or whatever, but it didn't sound like somebody was piling it on you or, or niggling you to do that, that this is something that came from you. And I just think that's so important. And, and especially now, I'll just, in 2017, federal health researchers surveyed high school students in 19 school districts and found that almost 2% identified as transgender. Now that's mucho many times more than five years earlier. So I'll pile a bunch of questions on you that why is it the decline in social stigma? Is it a fad fueled by peer pressure? Are underlying psychological problems coming out? Have at it, Xander. My answer is yes. I think that all of those are factors. Um, Some of them, you know, might be, there might be individuals, you know, young kids, teenagers, where it's both, it's could be the peer pressure, pressure, or what's called social contagion, and some uh, psychological issues. Uh, But I think that um, there are some people who just have a good sense of themselves. They have an innate sense that, uh, that there's just something off. 
Uh, it could be hormonal. It could be it, who knows what it is, right? It's probably different for everybody. And there are some people that are very, very easily persuaded by peer pressure. And we know this to be true because it's been brought up in many other issues around, say, like eating disorders and cutting, right? So we know that peer pressure, uh, doing drugs, drinking alcohol, risky behaviors, right? Peer pressure does have a strong influence, especially on middle school students and high school students, and probably even college students because they're still quite young. And so I, I don't rule out any of those things. I, I think that what we need to be able to do is um, a really comprehensive biopsychosocial assessment in order to explore all of these ideas with our patients and clients to get a better understanding of their unique disposition, their unique understanding, their unique experience, and take things on a case-by-case -case basis. Well, that sounds quite reasonable. And I think this is one of the problems we're having now, whenever there is a hot button issue or issue that some people are just saying, I just don't understand this, which is understandable. Uh, it's, it's an unusual thing to discuss. Um, that we have to be reasonable. We have to learn from everybody. And um, this is one of the reasons we're having this show, to hear a, a, a different opinion. And, and I would say an opinion that's uh, a qualified one. And certainly everybody has their own thoughts about this. But I'm just, again, glad to have you here to discuss because I'm learning a lot as well. And so you, one of the things you said that I just think is so important that a complete assessment and therapy has to be a critical part of this whole process. I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I understand a lot of times childhood trauma and, and other body image concerns and depression, anxiety, that that turns out to be the real problem. What have you found? I think that what happens is during a, when, especially as a social worker, when a social worker is on a, say, a transgender healthcare team or a transgender surgical team or at a gender clinic, if they're doing comprehensive biopsychosocial assessments, which might take, you know, two or three sessions to really get into the depth of the life experience of that patient or client, it's, it's probable that's what, that what you're going to find is that they may need psychotherapy. Um, on an ongoing basis versus short-term basis um, in an effort to help them adjust, right? If they are going to do a, a social transition, if they're going to start cross-sex hormones, uh, because there is an adjustment period. And I think leaving young people, I'll just talk about teenagers where this is more prominent. I think leaving teenagers to uh, navigate a gender transition, whether social and or medical and the legal aspects of it too, and the, and the familial and the community-based aspects of that, leaving them to navigate that on their own without the support of somebody who's trained and knowledgeable in how to adjust to those different experiences, or at least able to listen to the struggles that a young person is having and, and help them sort them out, right? Not give them all the answers and all the solutions, but help them sort it out. 
Um, I think that's a dereliction of duty. And I think it violates um, certain ethical codes where we're just going to be, you know, if we're just going to give a young, a teenager some hormones and say, you know, good luck with that. Here's some resources in your community or here's a support group that's peer based. Um, I don't think that's enough for every patient and client. I think some people do need psychotherapy, especially the ones that have comorbidities, right? People that are dealing with major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, um, again, you know, adjustment disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, whatever it is they're dealing with. If there's something in addition to the gender dysphoria, I think that warrants psychotherapy, whether it's short-term or long-term is again, I think a case-to-case -case basis. I wanted to comment about one thing that you said about, you know, it's difficult to have conversations like this. Um, and I think that's because people are taking positions, right? We're a very polarized nation. Um, we have been in the past and we are now. You're either pro something or you're con something. You either support it or you hate it. Uh, you're a bigot, right? Or you're an ally to some group of people, or you're a homophobe or a transphobe, right? It's like, it's an either or, we're looking at things from that perspective. And that's just not reality, right? Reality is in the gray area. Reality is in nuance. nuance. It's in complexity. It's in context. And I think that's where the problem is, is that people are so polarized that getting to see middle ground is somehow perceived as being just as wrong as being on that side of the bigot or the homophobe. It's, it's likened to that level. You're either for us or against us, as President Bush, Bush said many years ago, right? So, Well, well, Xander, I'm not against you, but I do have to go to a break. <laughs> And I want to thank everybody for listening to America Out Loud. And we've got free apps on Apple, Android, and Alexa. You can hear Pulse every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern with an encore at 10 p.m. and on iHeartRadio at 8 a.m. the next morning while you're driving to work, I suppose. All shows go direct to podcast in 24 hours. And we've got it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Tune in, Stitcher, iHeart, and several others. So make it easy. Bookmark AmericaOutloud.com. All right. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the pulpidone iodine based nasal spray, Cofix RX. They talk about it because it's a product that actually works in combating colds, flus, and coronaviruses. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. It's simple. By attacking viruses where they incubate, you make it easier for your body to heal. Check out the Cofix RX banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply. 
and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. America Out Loud meets to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. We are America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. So welcome back. I just have kind of a big question. I, first, I'm so glad you pointed that out. That, and it and it saddens me. I just remember a day when you could talk to people, people you didn't even like. And uh, I'm not talking about child molesters or rapists, but just regular old people. And uh, you'd actually like Marianne Williamson said, she said, keep an open mind, something good might fall in. And that's kind of how people used to be, you know, even sort of uptight people. Uh, it's, it's sad what's happened. But back to this. So what do you think? We're talking about teens. How young is too young to make this kind of decision? Well, it depends on whether we're talking about a social transition or a medical <laughs> transition, right? So a social transition might be something like taking on a nickname, changing your hairstyle, changing the style of clothing you wear, um, you know, the types of activities you participate in, things like that, right? It's, it's not doing anything that would be considered medical or permanent, right? There's no medication, there's no surgical procedures. There's not e even any legal processes that you're going through, like changing a name legally, something like that. So I think that um, teenagers often experiment with self-identification and self-expression, right? And so teenagers will you know, shave their heads, they'll dye their hair, they'll cut their hair, they'll grow their hair, they'll try different clothes. So I don't think it's that unusual. I think it, it is, it's a bit more um, discomforting for people, maybe parents and, and others, when what's accompanying that um, sort of struggle or experimentation with who we are and how we present to the world is coupled with gender dysphoria or um, a struggle with identity around gender, right? Gender nonconformity in and of itself is not gender dysphoria, but some people with gender dysphoria have, are gender nonconforming, right? It's not, it's not necessarily the two are the same thing. And so I think that's one thing that needs to be sorted out. Is this a young person who's just gender nonconforming? I don't want to see a day when gender nonconforming females 
um, are routed into social transition to live their life in some sort of pseudo male way, and then ultimately start taking hormones and getting surgeries to be men, you know, trans men, um, or non-binary people as more people are taking on that um, label now, um, just because they're gender non-conforming, they might just grow up to be a gender non-conforming heterosexual woman or a lesbian woman or a bisexual woman. And the same thing for boys. And I think we do problematize boys who are not stereotypically masculine more than we then we uh, problematize girls who are not stereotypically feminine but i what i'm noticing is that when i was in school um you know there were struggles around you're not acting uh, girly enough or you're not you're not feminine enough. I heard those messages from some members of my family and from certain people on the playground, so to speak. Um, but it wasn't ever thought that, oh, you know, it's because you're a transgender person, right? That wasn't happening back then. Um, but the idea about starting hormones um, and having surgical procedures, I think surgical procedures um, should happen uh, at age of consent, right? Um, and I think Unfortunately, I don't think that's 18 in all states. Um, and so they might have to make some differentiation between consent to medicine versus consent to surgical procedures uh, because surgical procedures are practically irreversible. And what I mean by that is if you do a double mastectomy on somebody who says, I wanna live in the world as a man or a boy, um, you, they can always get um, breast augmentation uh, with implants put in. So it, that actually can be done, but their natural breast tissue is removed. Um, but with hormones, hormones, there's some reversible and some non-reversible aspects, and there's more extreme non-reversible and some sort of mild non-reversible aspects to cross-sex hormones or gender-affirming hormones, um, some people call them. Um, and I, I think that what's underappreciated is just how potent hormones are. Hormones don't just give, like, didn't just give me a deep voice and a big old Grizzly Adams beard on my face. It also changed the way in which I perceive the world around me. And it also changed the way in which the world around me perceived me. And that was probably the most challenging part of my gender transition was dealing with those changes in how people perceived me and therefore treated me. Um, and I don't know the teenagers unless they have a really, really strong support system all around them, are going to be able to help them navigate through that. Um, the more uh, social, mental, and emotional um, aspect of taking cross-sex hormones at the, at the level, right, at the dosage that would lead to a gender transition. Some people are doing things called micro-dosing, where they're taking very small amounts. Um, and I'm not too, um, I'm not too keen on low dosing. I know it's popular. My issue, and I'm not a medical doctor, so you might have more information on this than I do. My, my uneducated guess about microdosing is that it's causing major turbulence in our bodies physiologically that our endocrine system is struggling to calibrate and could result in mood swings and uh, but more body dysmorphia um, as a result of say menses not ceasing at the start of a low dose of testosterone. Um, so, but again, I'm taking a, a somewhat educated guess on that. I'm not exactly sure, but so I'm not a big fan of the micro, micro dosing, which I think a lot of times they're doing with these teenagers. And I just wonder what kind of um, mood swings and emotional turbulence that they're being thrust into with these lower levels of hormones. I think that's a very good point. And there's a couple 
things here. We talk about kids and a particularly males' brains not even being fully formed until the age of 28. And something you had said in our first segment about, and when people are seeking psychological care, things have to be done on a case-by-case basis. And this is something, people forget it in medicine. People, when you, you know, it goes back into this kind of all or none phenomenon that we've gotten into, that things are gray, people are different. And there could be a very mature younger person Females certainly mature faster than males. And so, yes, I think you're 100% right. It must be the age of majority and the age of true majority, not like in California where 12, you can consent to have an abortion and, and they're trying to make some of this hormone stuff that young. And kids, they just don't know. I mean, there's side effects and, you know, increase risk for heart disease and uh, gaining weight, high blood pressure, osteoporosis, uh, you know, uh, venous embolisms, fractures and strokes. I mean, so there's a whole lot of things that can happen if you start to kind of mess around with these hormones. And people have to be old enough to be aware of that. And uh, that's what bothers me so much. And how can you have a child make such a decision that could change their health, not just their mental health, for the rest of their life? And, I think, oh, sorry. Go yeah, ahead. no, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I think what ends up happening is the debate becomes around if we block access to gender affirming healthcare, right? That's the language that's being used. If we block the access to gender or if they, right? The legislators, whomever, if, they, if, if, if there's this blockage to gender affirming hormone therapy, then it's gonna impact people in the way of maybe increased suicidal ideation. Um, it might, right? There's all kinds of issues that, that might come up, people say. Um, and so what they want to do is they want to take what's called an informed consent model and they want to apply that. Uh, the issue that I take with informed consent is one, I think with adults, it's perfectly reasonable to, to be driven by informed consent. Um, but there's two problems with informed consent, in my opinion, with both adults and with teenagers. And with children, typically it's your parents that are consenting. With teenagers, there's a little bit of wiggle room, right? But informed consent means that you're being informed. Somebody who's an expert, a specialist in an area is giving you information. And at the same time, you're supposed to go out and find out your own set Information, right? The WPATH or World Professional Association for Transgender Health Standards of Care version seven, which is the version we're currently using, it's been around about 11 years now, says that par part of the responsibility is on the patient or the client to become informed, right? And so the, the issue that I have with it is that the health literacy in this country is so low. Science literature as a whole is low. And when you take just a subset of science and you look at health, right, medical science, the literacy rate is so low. So when somebody, when a, say an endocrinologist is saying to a 14 year old, you know, well, here are some medical, um, you know, contraindications of this medicine you're about to take. How much of that information is that teenager actually comprehending? Do they comprehend 
what sterility means? Do they comprehend what um, increased rate of heart disease means? Do they really understand how, how that information might, um, if, if it came to fruition, how it might impact their life? Um, I mean, most teenagers are not thinking that deeply about those kinds of ideas. Um, and the ones who are, are still going to have a certain level of, of uh, lack of knowledge. And hopefully things are being explained to them. But I don't think that things are being explained to people that well. Or I don't think we've had, we would have as many people who start cross-sex hormone therapy or gender-forming hormone therapy and then stop, right? They go off of the hormones because somehow things are happening to them and they feel like either they weren't told about that or they didn't really comprehend what was going to happen to them or that they thought they'd be the exception to things. I'm not exactly what goes through everybody's head, but so uh, my concern is health literacy is very low and we're relying on people, teenagers and young adults to be able to make decisions with, uh, they're being told information, but I don't know that they comprehend that information. And, uh, you know, the worst thing with teenagers, I mean, we were all a teenager once, is you listen to your friends. Uh, it reminds me of what mothers always say. Well, if Johnny jumped off the cliff, <clears throat> excuse me, would, <clears throat> would you jump off the cliff? And, you know, Johnny's taking hormones. So yeah, that seems okay. So I'll do it. Or Johnny says, do it, do it. It seems okay to me, even though an adult or someone else said, hey, hold the phone here. Let's take it easy. But Kids sometimes don't listen to the best people they should be listening to. And that has to be kept in mind when you, even if you give that information to a youngster, how do they incorporate it? And then they go tell their friends and their friend says, well, I heard, da, 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 and then they tell some story. So it's such a confusing time of life in the first place. Even if you don't have gender issues, kids are so emotional. You remember the first boyfriend or girlfriend and you broke up with them and you thought you'd die and that you'd never love anyone again. And, you know, very gone with the wind. And I'm thinking, how can you have people who are so emotionally labile and volatile make such a life-changing decision? It, it, I, I cringe when I think of people who uh, take it lightly. Well, you know, part of the issue is that the, that, um, you know, gender confirmation surgery or sex change surgery or, you know, cross-sex hormones or gender-affirming hormones, what they do to you um, gets glamorized, right? It gets glamorized on social media. Oh, look at me with my, you know, my shirtless picture after my top surgery is healed up and, you know, look at all these muscles I have or look how pretty I look or, you know, so they're glamorizing it. Um, but what, what people are generally not learning is about some of the, um, unfortunate side effects of the hormones. And that's going to be different for every person because they impact each person very differently. Um, or some of the complications from mild to moderate to very severe complications uh, post-operatively. Um, I had an experience years ago where I did have a surgery and I did have uh, what would be considered probably a moderate um, or to sound like the commercial, a moderate to severe complication. Uh, but it was, it was a moderate complication that sort of went toward the more severe than the mild. 
And when I was talking to people about this um, experience that I was having in the trans community, in the trans male or trans man or FTM for female to male community, I got so much pushback. People started, um, you know, talking about me negatively as if I was I was defaming or maligning my surgeon who had sort of built up this, you know, almost like a fan base around him. And so, uh, but I found other people who had gone to the same surgeon were also having complications. And we created our own little support group, which still exists to this day on Facebook, um, that's now extended to other surgeons as well. But we had to go into this little, like, we had a Yahoo group and then a Facebook group that are secret or private or closed because um, it wasn't safe to talk about these things out in our community setting. And I find that really troubling because if people are coming into the trans community thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to get these surgeries, I'm going to start these hormones, and all they're seeing are the Instagram representations or the YouTube videos that are only focused on the positive, they really don't have the full picture of the experience of members of their community, whether it will be their experience or not is is again to be seen but they don't know that it's happening to their community members well on that uh, terrible note we'll swing around and i'll thank people for listening to america out loud pulse free apps apple android alexa and you can hear us every weekday at 5 Eastern, Encore at 10 Eastern, and at 8 a.m. the next morning on iHeartRadio. Make it easy. Bookmark AmericaOutloud.com on your computer. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about these gender clinics and upsides and downsides. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years. Brush, floss, repeat. We're told to use fluoride, which doesn't really address the acid-creating bacteria. That is where the dentist-recommended Spry Dental Defense System shines. Spry products contain xylitol, a natural sugar, which helps get rid of those nasty, smelly, acid-creating bacteria in our mouth. The best way to care for your teeth and gums is by using Spry. The Spry Dental Defense System has a wide variety of products, toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and chewing gums that are designed to work together to keep your teeth clean and mouth healthy and smelling sweet all day long. To get your oral care back on track, in an easy, effective, and very tasty way. Switch to Spry today. Ask your dentist about Xylitol and the Spry products. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural product retailers. Okay, back again for our final segment. Uh, I'm fascinated by this discussion. I've, I've learned a lot, and I've learned a lot about 
differing opinions, and uh, I hope everybody else is too. Okay, years ago, 2007, there was a gender clinic that opened in Massachusetts. It was the first clinic. Now we fast forward and there's at least 60 gender clinics around the country. UCSF, where I trained in medical school, has a large one and they saw almost 400 patients last year. And that's almost double from pre-pandemic. I wonder, did the pandemic have anything to do with it, with kids looking at more TikTok and Instagram, you know, what you mentioned with only the positive and none of the negative put out there on the internet, I don't know. But with these clinics and with more, what should I say, publicity, have you seen an improvement in care for gender-confused kids? Well, quick disclaimer, I, I don't work with kids. I've never worked with kids. So this is, this is outside of my scope of practice. So I'm not very informed about what's going on in all these uh, gender clinics. Yeah, but the last time I looked, which was a couple of years ago, I think there were more like 80 of them, right? So some of them are based in children's hospitals and some of them are, are somewhat private. Um, so just just mm-hmm. as you know, for, for your listeners to know about that, there's actually more than 60. Um, so I think, you know, when it depends on how you how you identify them and count them up. Um, you know, I take the lead on this from my colleague, Dr. Erica Anderson. Uh, she's the outgoing president of the United States chapter of the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. So um, under the auspice of WPATH, they're known as USPATH, and she's the outgoing president. And uh, she's a transsexual woman who's also a licensed psychologist in the state of California. And she was until pretty recently um, on staff as a psychologist at the um, Children's Hospital of UCSF in their gender clinic. And so she has spoken out pretty strongly in, on, in several uh, different ways through newspaper articles, being on television, podcasts, on different people's YouTube videos, talking about what she considers, quote, shoddy um, treatment. And I think what she's mostly getting at is this lack of comprehensive assessment that comes prior to routing a young person into uh, either hormone blockers or puberty blockers, I mean, um, or cross-sex hormone therapy or, or different surgical procedures. So she's, she's the person that I take my lead from on that. And also Dr. Marcy Bowers, who is the uh, soon-to-be president of WPATH. She's a transsexual woman as well. And a, um, I believe she's a gynecologist and she's been doing uh, Uh, genital reconstruction surgeries or quote bottom surgeries, uh, mostly on trans women, but also on trans men for a number of years now. And she's, she's been quite critical also through the media about using puberty blockers, specifically around issues of, of uh, fertility, how it can destroy fertility. Because if you go from using puberty blockers uh, to going right onto cross-sex hormones, you don't go through puberty and therefore you don't, um, Oh, what's the word for it? You don't, um, 
uh, I'm thinking horticulture, like germinate the seed, but I know there's a different word for it, um, for, you know, for like the, you know, the gametes, the sperm and the, and the egg that they uh, fertilized, I think might be the proper term for it. You, when you, you don't go through puberty, then you don't, you don't do that. And you also don't, you don't, ma you don't mature. Uh, physically in some ways. So for example, her, Dr. Bauer's main concern is that uh, a young uh, biological or natal male who's on puberty blockers and then goes on to estradiol or estrogen um, hormone therapy and wants, for example, uh, a vaginoplasty, they don't have enough penile tissue in order to create that vaginal canal because they never went through puberty. Therefore, their, their um, penis didn't grow. And so that's another reason. So it's fertility and also just the surgical issues, um, complications that can arise using other tissue like colon tissue, which, you know, has its, has its problems. You don't really want people cutting into your colon. Um, so it's, it's, so it's outside of my scope of practice, but I would, I would say that I think I find it reliable that when a transsexual woman who's a psychologist, another one who's a medical doctor, who are both very prominent within the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, when they're voicing these concerns against all odds, and with many people being very upset with them talking about these issues, especially out in the general public, um, I'm listening to them because um, another is uh, Dr. Laura um, Edwards Leeper, who is the founder of that clinic that you mentioned in Massachusetts, who is also now very critical of uh, the way in which uh, young people are being routed into a medical transition um, through blockers or cross-sex hormones without enough assessment um, prior to that. So, so to me, these are people that we should all be listening to. Now, are they, are they going to be in the long run, you know, the ones that win out? I don't know, but I find them quite compelling because they're the ones on the ground level doing the work and two of them are transsexual. I don't know why they would have any reason to speak about um, these issues as a way to harm the community. I don't consider it them to be transphobic at all. So that to me also raises a concern when people within the trans community want to um, label them as transphobic, which is happening and silence them and get them to stop talking to the media um, uh, I'm paying attention to that as well. Why don't you want these seasoned experts and specialists in our field and in our community to be speaking about their experiences dealing with their patients and their clients? It sounds like they're just being realistic, but you know what? If I can be a black, white supremacist, they can be a trans transphobe. I mean, come on, where have you been, Xander? I know I'm, I'm, I'm supposedly I'm a racist transphobe as a, as a first generation American trans man, I'm, I'm racist um, and, and a uh, transphobe. So I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> it's what it sounds like is these people are trying to be good doctors with a difficult medical situation. I've heard of one program. I read about it and, and it was in a, in a med medical article where um, <clears throat> this one fellow thinks it's not a mental illness, therefore you shouldn't have any psychotherapy at all. Well, gee whiz, a lot of people get psychotherapy just, and it doesn't mean that you're crazy or psychotic, but you need some help from an outside source. And he's saying that if you put these kids through all these assessments, then they'll start to question themselves. 
well, isn't that sort of one of the things that when you do psychological exploration, you're supposed to question things. And I've heard, and I don't know, haven't been there, that there's some clinics that have a very short intake, an hour interview before you get pills. And apparently at Planned Parenthood, you can walk in and get them with a very short interview. And this is what is so wrong. And you know that expression, how one rotten apple spoils the whole bunch, that the whole gender identity issue is complex and you have someone treating it as though it's a common cold, it ruins the the whole medicine behind trying to work things out so people have a better life, a healthy life, a happy life. And uh, it, it saddens me as a doctor to have people out there who are basically charlatans and um, mutilating people with, with no good reason. And I think about, gee, I was a tomboy as a kid. And uh, if I were a tomboy now, what would they be doing? What would people be saying? It, it, it's kind of scares me to think at how quickly people are jumping into things like that. And I, I don't think anything in medicine ought to be jumped into quickly unless it's an emergency, obviously, and you have to do something right away. But medical treatments, even things like putting people on statins, statins aren't benign. You take a while to decide if you're going to put the patient on statins, certain blood pressure medicines, all sorts of things that we take our time and sit back and reflect. And the idea that there's something wrong with you, Xander, because you think people should reflect on such a momentous life-changing decision is, uh, I don't know, it's, it's not understandable to me other than people have another agenda, kind of a political agenda, not really an agenda that's trying to be for health. Well, there's a lot there. What I would, what I'm going to start out saying is that um, I'm going to bring up something I mentioned just a little bit ago, which was dealing with the issue of the lack of or poor health literacy. So um, part of that is the lack of understanding of anatomy and physiology and medicine and how medicine impacts the body. Um, and so if people don't really understand how their body works and how medicine is going to impact different parts of their body and their mind, um, are they then actually making an informed consent decision? I don't think they are. I do know that there's a pretty easy access for adults to get hormones at many clinics all around the United States. Um, and I, I, I wish there were a little more... Um, um, I don't know what I would call them. I, I just wish there was an assessment put into practice. Again, I want to differentiate between doing a comprehensive biopsychosocial assessment and um, requiring somebody to go through psychotherapy um, and both short-term and long-term, right? So there's this effort out in society to destigmatize mental health, but at the same time, we're trying to remove any kind of mental health diagnosis from an experience that many people are having. 
So how can we destigmatize gender dysphoria if we want to say that gender dysphoria doesn't exist or gender dysphoria isn't a mental illness? Um, I mean, as of right now, it is in the DSM or the Diagnostic Statistics of um, Manual. So it, it is considered a diagnosis. Um, but why is gender dysphoria any more stigmatizing than anxiety or depression or grief, right? These are all things that are also in the DSM. And so I think maybe it might be, it might be a better idea to find ways to destigmatize gender dysphoria rather than try and, and say it doesn't exist or it in and of itself is, is not you know, a condition. Gender dysphoria just means that people are having either a mild or a moderate or medium or severe or high um, ex, you know, uh, distressed, distressed experience with how they feel about themselves, how they want other people to see them, how they see themselves, Right, that there's just different levels of distress associated with that. It doesn't always have to be extreme, um, and therefore people don't necessarily need to be in long-term psychotherapy as a result. And I think, again, this goes back to that polarization point that we were making earlier, which is it's either all or nothing with people, right? It's like there's one side that says remove all diagnostic codes, people should be able to just walk in to a pharmacy or a clinic and on demand get their hormones, regardless of their age. I don't think that is appropriate. On the other end, you have people who are saying, shut it all down. There should not be transsexuals. We should not have these um, hormones, you know, being used for that way. It's off label anyway. The FDA hasn't approved, you know, using these these hormones or blockers for the purpose of, you know, a gender transition. Um, and so I take again, you know, as we've already talked about, more of a middle path, you know, on that. That there are transsexual people in society. There are transgender people in society. Um, there are gender non-conforming people in society. Again, it should be case-by-case case basis. And that case-by-case case basis is determined through the comprehensive biopsychosocial assessment. And if it's if psychotherapy is warranted, then it will be presented to the patient or client at the end of that comprehensive assessment. So I think at a bare minimum, these clinics where you can kind of go in and say, I'm trans, I want to start a transition, I think they should have um, at minimum, a social worker who's doing a comprehensive biopsychosocial assessment to just determine, like, what is your support system? What have you told people about yourself? What is it that you understand about yourself? For how long have you been feeling this way and thinking this way? And what are how, how would you like to see yourself in the future? And what are the steps you want to take to get there? And how do you think you're going to be able to access those steps, steps considering, you know, for minors, considering that you don't have a job and you can't pay for those things? You know, how, how do you know how to get access to those things? That, you know, gender exploratory therapy, I think, uh, is um, unfortunately... It's being labeled as conversion therapy by people who only support what's called gender affirmation therapy, where you just 100% affirm and treat um, the, the, the child or the teenager. Um, and again, I don't support conversion therapy or reparative therapy for anybody for any reason. However, I do support gender exploration. I think it's important for people to, to think about 
their life and where these ideas have come from and what they mean, because it could turn out that somehow they've internalized from their peer group or their family or their um, their religious community that being the kind of boy they are, the kind of girl they are is wrong. Well, Um, I tell you, I think it's wrong that we have to stop. Mark, time is up if you can believe this. And I just think this discussion has been a huge step toward returning an open debate to medicine. And it's something that's been lost. And I applaud you for coming and giving your honest opinion and your honest contribution. So thank you so much, Xander. Thank you, Dr. Singleton, for inviting me. It was an honor and pleasure. I really enjoyed our conversation. And for everybody listening, thanks for listening. And remember our free apps, Apple, Android, and Alexa. And you can hear us every weekday at 5 p.m., Encore at 10 p.m., and on iHeartRadio, 8 a.m. the next morning. So whether you agree or have other opinions, please share the show. And until next week, say it loud. I'm free and I'm proud.